Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. So, Mark... It's finally here. You too are playing the Sphere in Las Vegas this evening. Just for this evening, that on the day we're recording, they're playing their first show tonight. That's right. I've been watching various interviews with them. I must admit, I'm fascinated by this whole thing. Aren't you? I think it's really, really interesting. The Sphere. We've talked about it before on podcasts, but to, to, to recap, this is a, a, a gigantic uh, construction. Uh, built in Las Vegas. It's taken several years to, to, to complete, cost $2 billion. It's spherical, obviously. It's 100 metres high, isn't it? And 150 metres wide. It has 18,000 seats. It's got a gigantic digital screen all around you and, and, and indeed underneath you. It's got 1.2 million lights. It has 160,000 speakers. The sound system will deliver sound through the floorboards. It has 4D features. Dave, I'm not even going to pretend that I know what 4D means, but I'm just saying it anyway. It includes, this. do you know about this? It includes scent and wind. So there's, there's sensory impressions. You suddenly get aromas. You suddenly get a sense of, of movement of the air. Your seat will vibrate. There are animatronic robots and holographs. Um and the projections actually make appear on the outside of the building. If you're outside the building, you can see what's going on in the show. And at one point, apparently, they, they project the, the, what the sphere looks like in Las Vegas if you were looking at it from the outside, and thus the building disappears. Yes. Extraordinary, it's extraordinary, do you think? Plus, there's really interesting, I'm looking at this little site about it, it says, uh, all seats will have high-speed internet access. <laughs> that's, the, that's the key hook, isn't it? So that you can uh, so you can tweet to all your mates saying, basically, I'm here and you're not, you know. But I am fascinated by this, you know. Also, oh, how exhausting would that be? How much can your brain absorb? Well, yes, I suppose, yeah. Our elderly brains, probably not so much, you know, but I suppose if it's somebody... Somebody younger, although it's probably, you know, given the, uh, the, the ticket prices, it's probably going to be an older demographic. I'm interestingly, I'm looking right now at, uh, 
at the uh, the site where I can still buy tickets for tonight. Yes, they're available. I had a look at that too. If you are available, uh, in section 306, you can get two together, thankfully, for uh, for $2,670. Uh, that's obviously the kind of sweet spot in uh, row six and section 306. Um, and it's really fascinating because this is obviously means the advent of the thousand pound night out, doesn't it? Really, you know, because because once it's two people, and and you've you know you've paid to get there, or you you're in a hotel or whatever, and then you maybe got a meal afterwards, and you've you've probably spent money on merchandise. It, it's a thousand pound night out, which is. You think, how did beat music end up like this? You know, how did they end up outstripping grand opera and you know prestige sporting occasions in terms of the amount of money that people would be prepared to spend? And um, well, I was thinking, I was thinking that specifically because I can remember first seeing you two. I think it's forty-two years ago in October nineteen eighty-one in Bracknell Sports Centre. <laughs> Bracknell Sports Centre, which they'd half filled, and a little changing room, which I can really remember going in to interview them. A little changing room with some wall bars in it and some gymnastic equipment, and Bono was practicing his scales and all that. They went on half-filled Bracknell Sports Centre. It's astonishing. Now, as you say, thousand pound night out. Thousand pound night out. You know, and people will pay it. And do you know what? It just struck me when I was sitting here looking at the site and looking at the seats available. If I was in Las Vegas tonight, do you know what, Mark? Well, I'd I'd go, if I could afford it, I'd go. I'd pay it. I'd yeah, pay I, it. I would. I would. Because the first get, night as well. No, but not just that. Because I've been thinking about the kind of the upside of doing it in the way that they've done it. Oh, the, the way that they're going to do it is that it will be something that most big rock and roll shows are not, which is a kind of controlled experience. You know what I mean? You're in this particular environment. Yeah. You're not going to be distracted by anything impinging on the environment, planes flying overhead or, or the weather turning nasty or all, the, all those kind of things, which tend to really rather affect people's experience of, of live music, don't they, as, it, as, it, as the scale gets uh, gets greater. This is all taken away. And so this is like, now you and I have not been to the, you know, the ABBA show, which has been running in London for years now. But what do we find? Everybody we talk to has been to it. It goes back. No, this is really good. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things that they obviously like about it is it's a controlled experience. It is what it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Nothing kind of, nothing ruins the illusion. You know, the, your disbelief is not, you're, you're happy to suspend your disbelief in that environment because you're not let down by anything that uh, impinges upon it. And I think you two at the Sphere will probably be quite similar. You know, now it's very early days. I couldn't help. Although it is actually a show, isn't it? It's not, well, it's not as though it's all coming off one bank of computers. Well, I mean, they're well, actually, they are playing. So I suppose there are variables. 
Which is interesting because they were only appeared to be rehearsing for the first time in the last week or whatever. That's the interesting thing that they that they interviewed. We, I was watching TV interviews with like the production manager and the designer and so forth. They've clearly been working on it for months, if not years. And then they talked to uh, Mono and and The Edge. Have you rehearsed? <laughs> and, and clearly they weren't expecting that that question. Where are they really? Yeah, they were they were very thrown by the CNN news, wasn't it? Very thrown by it. So, well, we did rehearse last night. Thanks for asking. It didn't go terribly well. <laughs> I thought I thought that was very interesting, you know, because that, ind- that indicates to, to what extent we are we are in the age of spectacle, or we have been in the age of spectacle ever since Live Aid. It's not about music at all. It's about spectacle. It's about what you pay to see. It's about what you. It's about the things that you see that you can then go uh, away, go home, and tell people you've seen and that you've seen them and that they haven't and seen. That they them. haven't precisely. That's the basic deal. Nobody is going away. Going. Do you know they did a really good version of one? They're not going away at all. It's nothing to do with that. Is it? Because go, every at sp- one point, this you know, the desert appears in the yeah. background or something yeah. like that. Because you are immersed 360 degrees around you in a massive um, digital screen, aren't you? Just with being bombarded with images, quite apart from the vibrating seat, (laughs) the aromas and the wind. I mean, that is just an utterly absorbing experience, isn't it? And so that will be yeah, completely unlike being outside and seeing them in some field somewhere. So, you know, if I were there, I would pay it. And you know what the good news is, Mark? There are still some seats available. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So have you seen the Roger Waters documentary? I've seen it. I've seen the one on YouTube by John Ware. I've seen it. It's called The Dark Side of Roger Waters. And it's about his, uh, it's about the, the, the mounting evidence for his uh, anti-Semitism, really, isn't it? I mean, that's, the, that's the gist of it, I guess. Well, the film's been kind of, I suppose, commissioned by the campaign against anti-Semitism. And it, um, I suppose it's got two key people it interviews. One is Bob Ezrin. Yeah, the old producer of um, three Floyd albums, wasn't he? And uh, he produced The Wall and so forth. He produced Alice Cooper back in the day. Yeah, he, he did. Was a very yeah. successful producer. Yeah. And, and a guy uh, whose name escapes me. Who, Norbert Stachel. There you go. Norbert Stachel, the saxophone player. That's a name that didn't ought to yeah. escape me. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty memorable. <laughs> he was a saxophone player with, uh, with Roger Waters, who liked Bob Ezra and his Jewish. Yeah, yeah. Um, and about their experiences of, um, of Roger Waters' um, anti-Semitic pronouncements. And I found it absolutely startling. The, I was know, staggered. It's a half an hour, half an hour. I was absolutely film. staggered by it. Because we should point out that that they have a, an email, don't they, from 2010, in which he's talking about resuscitating the, the giant inflatable pig, the old Floyd pig, uh, for his solo shows. And all about the, which I, I, they're too ghastly to be mentioned, but all the kind of anti-Semitic slogans and images that he wanted on there. Am I right? You know, the uh, Star of David and the dollar signs and all sorts of really, really ghastly uh, expressions that we really couldn't use. Um, he recently got, there was a controversy wasn't there, in Germany when he's wearing kind of Nazi-style trench coat on stage. Um, the Norbert Stachel talks about working with them and going out 
Very interesting. It's about power. It's about, about the idea. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. I, I'm, it's all about power. I, I'm employing you. You're in my band. You don't want to lose this gig, and therefore I can say whatever you want, whatever I want, rather. And you're not really going to complain about it or take me to task because you're you're frightened you might get fired from the band. That was broadly it. Wasn't yeah. It? That's very what, interesting point. Yeah, and he sense. knew that uh, Norbert Satcher was, was was Jewish and was talking about really revolted things about the food that they were eating there, which was, was just it was Jewish food. Um, and stuff about his his uh, his relatives that he was impersonating in a very cruel, racist way. I mean, it was appalling, wasn't it? And Bob Ezrin was talking about how he would constantly come in and talk about other Jewish people in the organisation or Jewish people they'd met in a really, really unpleasant way, knowing, of course, that Bob Ezrin was Jewish. That Bob Ezrin wasn't going to complain about it either. Uh, I mean, I thought it was astonishing. And the the most shocking bit was that, you know, we've talked about this before on the podcast, that Polly Sampson, who is the wife, of course, of David Gilmore, whose father came to Britain on the Kinder Transport in 1938, tweeted, didn't she, very memorably, oh, not that long ago, that he was misogynistic and he was uh, racist and anti- he said, described him as being anti-Semitic to your rotten core. And I didn't realise that a few days after this, on stage at the O2 in London in front of what would that be, 20,000 people, he talked about this, didn't he? And he said something so horrible and so childish and mean and misogynist about uh, Polly Sampson. Basically, something that you'd expect Lawrence Fox to have said. Absolutely, very good. It was virtually the same thing about waking up next to the. Oh God! I I can't even repeat it. It was so awful, actually, and offensive. And uh, so you come away from this thinking. A, why does he say these things? And which he, of course, denies when interviewed. And B, what points is he trying to make? I don't know. Did you get any idea? No, although I, the thing that stuck with me is the bit right at the beginning of the uh, documentary where he's, it's, it's from some other documentary he's done where it's just a camera, where he's basically saying that the government of Israel is doing everything in its power to kind of put him out of business. Yes. You know, which I just thought... It's a vendetta. You know, the idea the idea that the, the Mossad or whatever has Roger Waters on the list, yeah. you know, I think it probably comes quite a long way down. Um, and and it's like you were saying, what comes out of it is... is He's kind of megalomaniac streak to him, you know. Yeah. And it, Desperate I'm, I'm not an expert of, on Pink Floyd by any means, but witnessing this makes you kind of recalibrate your scale of, of, of you know, intra-band arguments. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. It, it makes John Lennon's How Do You Sleep look like a mild... Yes. A mild little spat. <laughs> um, this is, you know, it makes the worst that happened with Spinal Tap look like nothing at all. <laughs> and you just imagine if you're, um, if you're Dave Gilmore or Nick Mason, how you must feel about this, you know what I mean? Because you still have this shared heritage, don't you, you know, with Pink Floyd. And um, and you kind of got used to the fact that people have sort of warm feelings about it or warmly disposed towards it. And suddenly you've got this, this character. It tangles your relationship with it, doesn't it? You look oh, back at it? those concerts, you look back at those records that you really liked, you know. 
you open medal and you open up the gatefold sleeve and there's Roger Waters and your immediate impression of Roger Waters is very, very different, certainly in our case, yeah. now to what it was. It must, they must be mortified. And uh, well, It must be slightly the way Johnny Marr feels looking back at some of those old Smiths records. I, I suppose so. I mean, I think it's quite similar, you know, that this guy is just eroding all that goodwill and that good feeling, you know. There's a, a point in the um, documentary where somebody, maybe John Ware himself, describes... Roger Waters' brilliant, I thought, as being uh, exquisitely sensitive and exquisitely insensitive. Yes. Meaning that he was incredibly thin-skinned as regards uh, criticism <laughs> well, it, of himself. He can hand it out. Monstrously rhinoceros-hide <laughs> thick-skinned about dealing out to other people or else maybe just didn't care what they felt. Oh, that was a really good point, actually. Well, the other- really dish it out. But my God, if anyone says the faintest thing, I can remember him ringing me up personally when we were on Word magazine to complain bitterly about something someone had said about him, which wasn't that offensive, actually, in the magazine. Incredible. Well, and the other thing that they they refer to repeatedly in the documentary, and this is a word that tends to get overused nowadays, in my experience, but it probably, if the cap fits, it, it, bully is is what they say. Yeah, he's a bully, and and of course, if you are a bully, to be the leader of a huge rock band is a is a brilliant place to be a bully because you're surrounded by people you can bully. Yeah, other members of the band, you know, management, everybody you deal with, you know, crew. Because you call the shots. And you call the you're, shots. You're, they're all employed by you. They don't want to. They don't want to block their copybook. And you know, and so you know, every day you you might meet a couple of radio, local radio DJs or a journalist or whatever. There's more people you can bully. You know? yeah. Just line them up if that make if that makes you feel better. You know. Yeah. It's um, it's extraordinary. The only other thing that I was wondering is that. They talk about having made this film because they felt it's really important to um to 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 make this film because Roger Waters is a rock star and therefore he has a a pulpit from which he can kind of sway large numbers of people and obviously large numbers of people still go to see Roger Waters. Obviously, not as many as would do if he was if he was under the banner of Pink Floyd. And um, I don't know whether whether that's all that true anymore, really. I mean, I'm sure there's I'm sure there's a lot of people who go and see Roger Waters and, and, and are completely impervious to his views on, you know, the congestion charge, let alone Palestine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of we're not. You know, do, is anybody still doing that? Really? Did anybody? Really do it in the past. I don't. I don't know. Aren't you think people? I don't know. I thought about it too, and I, I think that. Um, I mean, a lot of the protest songs of the nineteen sixties. What they confirmed was that that pop music, rock music, was a kind of broadly a left left wing thing. But I don't know how much the converted people. I think they were probably preaching to the converted, weren't they? <laughs> the anti-war songs in America to a generation of people who were faced with the possible uh, con- uh, conscription to go and fight in a war. Uh, those people didn't need persuading about how they felt about that. Um, and most of those songs, you know, Emmett Till or Ohio or uh, Strange Fruit or Fortunate Son or whatever, they're songs about past events, you know. I don't know. And there have been all those tours in America, haven't they? The, the um, 
vote for change tours, you know, trying to get, when do you remember Trump versus, um, no, it was pre, uh, John pre, Kerry wasn't it? Pre-Trump, pre Trump, Trump, sorry, Bush, Bush versus but, yeah. John Kerry. Um, you know, and uh, well, ultimately Bush got in and Kerry didn't. And uh, I, I'm sure they had some effect. I just don't know. I don't know how persuasive it all is. It's um, interesting, though, uh, to look at that at the time when Taylor Swift is weighing in quite significantly yeah. uh, in in the American kind of I wouldn't say political situation, but the kind of culture wars, if you yeah. like. And Taylor Swift is obviously just a really exceptional individual, you know, in terms of the following that she's got and her, her apparent power to sway makes, you know, Pink Floyd and Roger Waters and the rest look look like nothing at all, you know. Yeah, because she's not only campaigning to try and get people to vote, but also to get them to vote Democrat. I mean, and I think, I, I have to admit, I really admire her for that because you're risking, aren't you, losing uh, a percentage of your followers, purchasers, whatever, because of your political allegiance. There must be, there must be hardcore right-wing supporters who like her who maybe don't feel very comfortable with that. I've got no idea. But I mean, her, her, her sway is phenomenal. I was looking up her. Do you know how many people she's got following her on Twitter? It will be many millions. 94 million on Twitter. Instagram, you ready for this? Go on. 273 million Instagram followers. I mean, that is just absolutely unbelievable, isn't it? And also, it's, a, it's her, her, her ability to kind of generate publicity because if you look at the list of, of famous blokes she's gone out with, which is pretty long and pretty impressive, isn't it? Um, you know, uh, Harry Styles and John Mayer and Jake Gyllenhaal. And she's now going out with is it Travis Kelch. Uh, Travis Kelch. This, listen, Kelsey. listen, Mark. This is the transformational relationship, this. Because this is like posh and Beck's you know, squared. Gee, oh, yeah. Or whatever. It's just absolutely extraordinary. He's the, um, for those of you who are not keeping up with events in the in the National Football League, um, we should point out that Travis Kell says the six foot five tight end of the Kansas City Chiefs. So he's an absolute superstar. Oh, he's a superstar because he's, he's got a podcast, hasn't he? He's big. dated a re- reality show hostess. He's big and he's handsome and so forth. He's but won I, two I Super did, Bowl titles. But I bet he does not know what's hit him in the last few weeks. Because if you're suddenly adopted as Taylor Swift's arm candy, you know, your life, your life before bears no resemblance to the life that you're now, you know, in. And so she then starts appearing in his games. Alongside, Which is brilliant, because the, the Alongside his mother. His mum. Yeah. <laughs> she is, I'm Colour sorry. coordinated. Listen, she's a genius. She's a mover, isn't she? God, she's an operator. Yeah. She is so calculating. Yeah. She does not miss a trick 
not a single angle in this There's at all. There's a tiny little clip of the two of them walking through the changing room or something like that beforehand. Very uneventful clip. Nobody says anything or does anything. They lost about five seconds. It's been absolutely all over the world. I think the, the viewing audience for that was something like 25 million, wasn't it, just for that game, which normally wouldn't get a very big audience, 25 million. And they're basically watching to see a whole load of people in the audience holding up banners about Taylor, Taylor Swift. It's, she's just absolutely oh, she's fantastic. And so, incredible. And it's all, it, it, there is there ought to be a branch of mathematics devoted to calculating what happens to a famous person, a, a very famous person, when they become part of a very famous couple. You know, we saw this. Well, it happened. With, you and I are old enough to remember it happened with Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah. You know, Together, they become five times bigger than the two of them individually. Same thing happened with Posh and Bex, didn't it, years later? Same thing yeah, happened. Yeah, but Posh and Bex was kind of bigger in a way because one was a footballer and one was a pop star. Whereas well, they were both film stars. Whereas this is the genius of this. This is the genius. Going out with another pop star, fine. It's another pop star and eventually you're going to finish up together or whatever. But to go out with a superstar... But this cross figure. This crosses over into the world of, as they call it in America, Joe Sixpack. You know, so the yeah. guy who's sitting on his garden on his lawn furniture, watching the football, uh, you know, out in Moose Droppings, Ohio, yeah. Yeah. suddenly is aware that Taylor Swift has entered into his world and utterly uh, transformed it. And um, this is she's going to have to marry him, surely, Mark. Yeah, I mean, she can't just drop him and find him the thought one, can she? Uh, well, she hasn't married any of the others. <laughs> no, there, isn't, there isn't an available royal at the moment, is there? There isn't. No, what there, you're saying is, is there is there anybody higher up in the ladder? That's well, the if, they, thing, if only there were a sort of handsome 28 year old royal over here, you know, she'd probably snap him up, you know, if he, if he was available, but he isn't. That's so. true. So, you know, for the moment, Travis Kells will have to do. <laughs> so it's an absolutely fascinating branch of um, uh, of show business and celebrity and romance, all these things tangled up together, you know, and it just, everybody loves it, doesn't don't we? Completely. The whole, world, the whole world loves it. You know? I'd never heard of this guy till yesterday, and uh, I've been reading all about him. I'm fascinated, <laughs> And it seems it's brilliantly calculating. But who knows, Dave? There may be genuine fondness there. The Word Podcast. Two cocoa tins and a piece of string. We didn't talk about last week uh, the passing of David McCallum, uh, who you and I remember as Ilya Kuryakin, the men from UNCLE, or one of the men from UNCLE. I remember him so vividly. What What I remember most was the different reactions between my sisters, my elder sisters and me, to the man from Uncle. You know, I was a probably sort of typical schoolboy where I was obsessed with the gadgets. I don't know if you do you remember yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. gadgets, there were some pretty impressive cars in a kind of Bond uh, style. But the thing I remember most is they had little tiny revolvers with um, with telescopic sights on them, which all seemed terribly thrilling at the time. My sisters used to sit there with their chins suspended on a kind of suspension bridge of fingers, just looking moon-eyed at Ilya Kuryakin. And he was kind of like, he was. A, it's funny, I noticed Muriel Gray had posted something about him on, on Twitter and um, saying how he's Glaswegian, actually, which I'm not sure if I knew, you know. I was looking at the replies and the 
buys one almost entirely from girls saying, Women. Who's my first crush? They're Women. always entirely Women. from grandmothers. Grandmothers. Who were, I'm, who I'm were basically I'm the, girls, but yeah, <laughs> grandmothers. Exactly. Saying this is my first crush. Because he was just, they were huge when they, that program. It, he was and the a lot of it was to do with his, he had a beetle haircut. <laughs> That's the thing. He? You know, you know, because he, he get, so they commissioned the series uh, in the, in the, in the wake of Bond fever. Yeah. And it's obviously Robert Vaughan. Who's Napoleon Solo, isn't he? He's the main yeah. character. And then and then they, they sign up this Scottish character actor, David McCallum, to play Ilya Kuriakin. And I think in the original script, he only had four lines. Four lines. Was that it? And it suddenly grew from there. <laughs> and they just they just developed it. And um, MGM said they had the most fan mail about him than anybody else they'd ever had in their television programs. When he used point. to do personal appearances, they used to say police motorcades used to issue instructions that they were not allowed to stop, ever. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Because they would just be a riot. That would close oh. down whatever city it was. Yeah. So here's this guy who just, he was an actor. He was just an actor, Scottish actor. Um, came from a musical background. I think both parents uh, were classical musicians. And, uh, you know, he gets into this part and it's just a whirlwind. It makes him an absolute, absolute superstar. Uh, for a while, and then and in, also just a huge number of spy duos after that, weren't they? I mean, yeah, because it was all about the Cold War, wasn't it? They were in a kind of uh, espionage organization, weren't they, during the Cold War, and that became incredibly fashionable in itself, but huge. And uh, and then he used his celebrity, didn't he, to make records, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He made four albums, didn't he? Which, which I was listening to yesterday, and I'd heard of odds and ends before, and I didn't realize they were all instrumental. Yeah, yeah. Are there any with him singing? I don't think there are actually. No, I mean, he was he was a trained musician, I think, because he came from a musical background. Yeah, no, I think no, his no, father no. particularly. Um, yeah. you know, so he, he was obviously capable. Um 
But these records, because they're brilliant, they're, they're very Austin Powers. I was yeah. playing one yesterday. Do you know that kind of they're kind of they're, they're versions of uh, yesterday, satisfaction, turn, 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 the in crowd downtown. We've got to get out of this place, all that played by orchestra, which was conducted by him. Who knows? He possibly paid the oboe too. I don't know, but it, right, he I, was, think he was, he was, I think he was, he was in the orchestra musician. Oh, yeah, he was. And then later on, you know, obviously did loads of things and then uh, turned up on, oh, God, what was it called? One of these one of these many um, police procedural series on streaming TVs, which uh, TV, which uh, has a, a kind of um, an acronym as a name, and I can't remember what it was. And, it, and he played a kind of um, pathologist uh, in, in this and was still playing this part. Up to when he died, and he was ninety years old. 90 years that old. was the thing. It was amazing. That's a hell of a career. That is it is amazing. Isn't it? <laughs> you know, isn't it? He must have been doing. He was acting from the age of about twenty-one to yeah. the age of ninety. That's just remarkable. But I tell you what, this got me thinking about was that 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 um, that syndrome whereby certain actors, certain very fortunate actors find themselves by as a consequence of a, of a casting decision that takes place when they're young that they become by the association of them and the part a sex symbol and they never shake it off and so david mccallum in the role of Ilya kuriakin was what made him a sex symbol it wasn't david mccallum it was david mccallum in that part is what made him a sex. And there's a mystery about it. Was, did he have a tragic so, secret? He's supposed to have a tragic secret. So did we ever find out what it was? I don't know. No. So, but girls get looking at like your sister or my sister or whatever. Um, we used to look at him and think, oh, I, I could sort out his problems. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it appealed to that side of them. Yeah. But, uh, but it, I, it made me compile a little list here of, um, Go on. of, of actors who became sex symbols in a certain role, in a way that nothing could ever be the same again. And uh, and the obvious one is Colin Firth as Mr. Darcy Colin in Pride Firth. and Prejudice. Yes. He's saying, so Colin Firth. done by Noble, stood by her, didn't he? Dependable. No, but not so much that. I mean, he was a bit of a heartless beast, wasn't he? But, it, but basically, you know, appeared in the... Uh, Appeared out of the out of the lake with the, with his shirt sticking to his yeah. torso, so he kind of looked like the cover of a Mills and Boone book, didn't he? But, yeah. but the point is, Colin Firth, terrific actor and so forth. But I don't think before that he's he'd ever been referred to as a sex bot. But right. after that, he was always referred to as a sex in the frilly blouse. He was completely. And the, <coughs> um, more recent example, Andrew Scott as the hot priest completely. In, in Fleabag? Andrew Scott will, will go to his grave, known as the Hot Priest, which he was never called, was he? By, by no one apart from the media and people who watch the programme. But it, again, it's the actor and the role. It's the actor, and he's a priest. That's the thing that kind of makes it work. But know? it was also her breaking the fourth wall, turning to you and telling you the whole time how much she fancied him. It right. made, made him intensely attractive somehow. You could see why he was attractive. Another one. And he's no longer with us. James Gandolfini as Tony Soprano. In the yeah. Stars. You know, brilliant, 
God, I mean, if ever a man was born to play a part, that was James Caldwell and Feeney in, in The Sopranos. But I was watching a terrific clip on YouTube of when he appeared as Tony Soprano, as, the, as one of the guest stars in Saturday Night Live, doing a sketch with Tina Fey. And, um, and at the end, Tina Fey says, that's the scariest man I have ever been attracted to. <laughs> Which gets at the same point. You know what yeah. I mean? That what's sexy is the fact that, oh, my God, he's a, he's a crime boss. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it's a combination of the two. And, well, um, you could probably say the same about uh, Sean Bean, couldn't you? you could. be, there's certainly something similar about him. My wife is absolutely besotted with Sean Bean at the time. Seen Bean, as she used to call him. <laughs> and I think a lot of this to do with not just the uh, colourless military jacket, a la Terence Stratton stamp in, uh, in um, you know. Charge the library. Oh, what, what, it, yeah. was, it's, uh, it was, it's, it was, it's the fact, and the stubble and the square jaw, it's the fact that the sword, the sword and the just physicality, of this is a man who's going to look after you. You wouldn't get into trouble if Sean Bean was, was on your arm. It's you, also, you know what I mean? It's also the fact that uh, he comes from Yorkshire rather than rather than Hampshire, Mark. Yeah, it <laughs> could be that. <laughs> but there are also obviously female um, cases, a bit similar. Felicity Kendall as Barbara Good in The Good Life. Completely. You know, it, anything Felicity Kendall does all these years later, is still compared to, oh, God, do you remember when she, you know. Well, I was the attraction of Felicity Candle in, in The Good Life was the fact that uh, she was always wearing kind of his jumpers and things, wasn't yes. she? she was always, you know, there was something really domestic and actually rather intimate about that. You felt you lived with that girl. I think I was a student at the time, well, no, it was before that she was there. But you kind of imagined you were living with her. You know what I mean? This kind of run-down old house. And she very often had a bit of paint on her nose. Yeah. Or like She's very often blowing a hank of hair out of her eyes. That's right, yeah. It was the fact... Her hair was, was all over the place. It was the fact that she wasn't dressed up. Yeah, she was covered in that blood. Was, that was really appealing. She never and, wore know, makeup. Absolutely. <laughs> I know women's magazines used to spend pages and pages trying to work out what uh, what men find attractive. They could have saved themselves a lot of trouble by looking at Barbara Good in The Good Life. Actually. They could. Because <laughs> another case, actually, Julia Louis-Dreyfus as yeah. Elaine Bennis in Seinfeld. Now, Julia yeah. Louis-Dreyfus, who I adore, and she's done loads of things, Veep and all those things, she will, ne- she will always be Elaine Bennis in Seinfeld. Yeah. She will always be that kind of 30-year-old girl who lives next door, who's, you know, always got a new boyfriend or something. You know? She's footloose from Fancy Free and, you know. She's a young woman around town. And that will and never, also never go has, away. Yeah, it has no impression you get of how good-looking she is at all. doesn't just be remotely aware of that, which is very no, attractive. I suppose so. Yeah, it's very attractive. Yeah. And the other one that just struck me finally is that, again, no longer with us, Carrie Fisher as Princess Leia in Star Wars. Now, yeah. Carrie Fisher made loads of films and then loads of them really good. At no stage did anybody fall in love with her in any of the other films at all. As Princess Leia in Star Wars, they did in their millions, you know what I mean? And that just, that just remained the case for many years later, you know. It's, um, I find it absolutely fascinating. Hugh Laurie. 
Hugh Laurier's Laurier uh, house. In house. Isn't that something to do with just the general appeal of the bedside manner? I think it is, actually. Well, he's also, it's rather gruff, isn't he? That's the, yes. that's kind of the appeal. He's not doing the obvious thing yeah. at all. There's yeah. always some little twist to that. They're always playing slightly against type. Um, I found it absolutely fascinating. So if anybody's got any more, you know, send them in. Unlikely sex symbols, send them in. This is a junction in the Word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. This week we talked to Gary Newman uh, for a, a word down your way because he's he's touring between now and Christmas, doing a kind of unplugged tour, isn't he? Of, uh, of, the Christmas um, tour of churches, mostly mainly. churches and a cathedral. Brilliant <laughs> idea. Really good idea. And I have to say, it was a unique, in, in all my interactions with pop stars, this one was utterly unique. Do you know why, Mark? Because... When we first got him on, we did it via Zoom. And I think it was before we were recording. Uh, and, and you said, Mark, you said, well, Gary, I don't think I've seen you since whenever, 79 or 80 or whatever. Yeah, it was 81. Uh, well, the cover of Smash Hits in his, in his, uh, Bogart hat is Macintosh. And to which he said, Oh, that would have been just after I had my hair transplant. And I was wearing, I was wearing the hat to cover up what was going on. And then he, I did. And I thought, my God. This is the fir- there you go. There this is, is this is the, the this is the first person, first pop star I've ever talked to who who within thirty seconds has introduced the subject of a hair transplant. And and do you know you, why he did it? Go on, because it's so successful. <laughs> I suppose so. I mean, it is. You know, had it been in any way patchy, having to be kind of uh, touched up every few years, I think he'd be probably very quiet about it. He'd be probably wearing a, a no number of head uh, as a lot of pop stars do but no 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 it's the most lustrous thatch <laughs> that he has on there and he looks brilliant he, he looks does. fantastic my he god does. he looks good he does no, I, I thought kicking, that was very funny. I was kicking myself afterwards so I thought oh god we could have talked to him about no, actually, he volunteered that information we he should did. have said something about it I know I thought he was fantastic. I thought the thing that struck me about him, of many actually, was that he seemed to be so, didn't seem to be a bitter bone in his body. No, no. He seemed to be completely content, not in a self-satisfied way, not remotely, far from it, just the complete opposite. He was very, very grateful, very appreciative yeah. for everything that happened to him. Yeah. And uh, he seemed really fulfilled. We talked to him, he was in a, in a what you'd call a kind of, Kind of, almost like a hunting lodge. Hunting lodge in Scotland, Scotland yeah. yeah. Which he bought to do up. It had a great stretch, stretch of river, which you could, um, people were happy to pay a thousand pounds a day to fish on, but his wife wouldn't allow it because she's vegetarian. He was now going to try and convince her this is a bad idea because a thousand pounds a day is pretty good. He's such, he's such a businessman, isn't he? He's amazing. But I just thought he just seemed so happy and so content and so much enjoyed touring and so much enjoyed making records. And his life seemed really, really wonderful. And I, I just thought that guy went through a lot of grief, didn't he? Yeah. You know, yeah. When I was at the NME, you know, that kind of, uh, Gary Newman was the butt of every joke. Oh, he was. Kind of, he was. That kind of nine pint blood donor kind of android git nerd, you know, with his, <laughs> his kind of pinched approach to life and he's prodding away at his synthesizers and whatever an to light was, you know, the Redskins or I don't know, some <laughs> group with, with guitars, you know. 
And uh, my God, within about, I don't know, two, three years, he was being hailed as a major electronic pop pioneer, wasn't he? And has never looked back. I don't never, know never looked back. I mean, that's a long old career, that is, you know. Yeah, it really is. been famous for a long, long time. And uh, now I... 21 I, albums. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and he told two really good stories, didn't he? One which, well, you'll have to watch the thing to find out. One was just, well, one was basically about going to see David Bowie, wasn't it? And throwing a glow stick at him, <laughs> and at, which hit him. So he threw, threw the glow stick that hit David Bowie while he was on stage. <laughs> so he was slightly ambivalent about that. And the other was just this brilliant story about getting, uh, getting Queen's autograph. And then losing them. <laughs> yeah, and that was very, oh, he was, I thought he was really... Charming, really. He was like absolutely charming. I, I liked him a great deal. And uh, yeah, he's on tour between now and Christmas. He's probably, probably playing the church down the end of your road. The Word Podcast. Clearly, there is no plan. Uh, read his correspondence, Mark. Um, this is from Bob. I think it's Lysa in, in Glasgow. And we were talking about tribute acts. We're very often talking about tribute acts. And Regular he, subject, we love and, him. And he's, um, he kind of knows uh, Lorraine McIntosh of Deacon Blue. And, uh, and he's, he's kind of, he, he's always trying to find out what she thinks of Deacon Blue tribute bands because he's interested in that. Is what does an original band think about its tribute acts? And obviously there's been a lot of traffic between tribute acts and the bands themselves, haven't they, over the years? Was it Marillion hired a singer? from a Marillion tribute band. Genesis hired a singer from a Genesis tribute yep. band. I think they did. And um, and um, the, the, there's, there's the extraordinary story of Mike Del Judas, um, who's a, a, a very good Long Island musician who tried to make it on his own but never did. And so started uh, running a Billy Joel tribute band called Big Shot. <laughs> Which became really popular, uh, and and uh, got so many dates that eventually got members of Billy Joel's band who were frustrated by the fact that Billy Joel himself wasn't on tour to come and play in the band. So effectively, you were saying Billy Joel, the Billy Joel band, without Billy Joel. But you had Mike Del Judas, who was played the piano, played the guitar, could do all the vocals, you know, Uptown Girl, just the way you are, all that kind of stuff, and eventually. Who got to hear about it? But Billy Joel. And so Mike Del Judas ended up in Billy Joel's band. Perfect. Being, being effectively second Billy Joel. <laughs> You're the guy in the background. Hitting all the high notes that he can no longer hit. Very probably. You yeah, know, that's yeah. fantastic. He's 40 years old or whatever, rather than rather than 70. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Turns up the sound, you know, the sound checks and so forth. Um, and, you know, does covers absolutely anything Billy can't can't do and so you know i suppose and, and one of the things that billy joel said to him and I, this may have been a certain amount of flannel but he said thank you for keeping my music alive on the island as in long island and uh, i think there's some truth in that you know that what's the good thing about tribute groups well they keep you alive don't they? you know what i mean because People only bother doing tributes to bands for whom there's kind of some love. You know, that's, that's what the deal is, isn't it, really? You know, and sometimes the artist doesn't realize the love that they have, you know. Um, 
And David so, Gilmore got, got the Australian Pink Floyd to play his 50th birthday. I can remember being told about that. Yeah. Because yeah. he really thought they were wonderful and he thought it was kind of a bit arch as well. But I think he was really, really touched by the fact that they were so good, you know. Yeah, I bet. I, bet. I think the thing that would really, really uh, be fascinating if you saw a tribute band um, uh, doing your the act that you were in was it'd be like seeing someone do a cartoon of you. A cartoon is caricature yeah. is taking idiosyncrasies it's taking mannerisms yeah, yeah. it's taking yeah. things about your physical appearance and about the things you say and the things you do and i think that'd be really interesting it's like you know it's like our producer alex is in various beatles uh, you know tribute bands you know it's the idea of, of of what 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 little mannerisms that you have for paul mccartney that oh that little thumbs up and all that kind of stuff you know the way he shakes his head and the john lennon kind of squinting without glasses the kind of myopic thing with his bent legs you know i i, I think that you know, must be really interesting to see yourself reduced to that kind of cartoon. Someone studied you to that extent. Yeah. Further correspondence, this is from Tim Calloway, who points out that, uh, that in certain quarters, cassettes are becoming popular again, trendy again or whatever, and he points out something about the cassette that doesn't apply to a CD or any other music carrier, that, uh, that um, you're... When you when you put in, you get a cassette out of a drawer and you put it in a cassette player, it starts playing at exactly the point where you stopped listening 20 years ago, yes. 30 years ago, yeah. 40 years ago. Who knows? It says, there seems to be something profound and important here in how we're taken back to continue from another time or from another version of ourselves with the music beginning exactly where we left it. He says, I like that about cassettes. It's a very good point, Tim. That's a really good point. That's really interesting. I don't know what it means, Tim, at all. I had that with my kids and computer games. They found a load of computer games up in the attic they have been playing 25 years beforehand, I think. And they, and they, and they finished them off. And they were the scores on them that, they'd, that they, they had, and they finished the games off. It was absolutely wonderful. Oh, really? Really? Again, and transported it, back. Teleported back through time. And a further bit of correspondence to prove, you know, what I'm always saying is that uh, people nowadays know far more about things that happened in the past than anybody knew in the past. We were talking to Neil's story uh, recently about Neil's fabulous history of Island Records, the Island Book of Records, first volume. Um, And we were talking about uh, he's got loads of old um, small ads semi-display ads from music papers of listings from the for the marquee from 67 68 or whatever and uh we were saying how most of the bands on those listings we'd still heard of or or is or almost still playing nowadays yeah there was one week where i think we still heard of 14 of the bands were still kind of still vaguely current there was only one that had disappeared well we said we said red light districts, you know, whatever happened to them. Yeah. Well, Darak is here to tell us it was a temporary name used by a three-piece blues rock outfit from Belfast called The Method, who had been creating quite stirring clubs north and south of the border around about 1967. And uh, right before they decamped to London in search of fame and fortune in the summer of 68, a 16-year-old Gary Moore played a few gigs with the band as the trio's main guitarist. So, you know... There are no secrets anymore, are they? It's the idea that somebody knows that, you know what I mean? There's no such thing as a band that's completely disappeared, that's left no trace. Is yeah. there? I don't think there is anymore. And actually, there's a challenge for you, listeners, 
you know, if you ever look at an old listing and think, well, they disappeared without trace, did they really? I fancy they didn't. I fancy nobody does. Nobody disappears. Nobody. The word podcast. It passes the time. Any other business with Alex Gold. He's back, ladies and gentlemen, on dry land and with us with news of new Patreons bought us, Alex. Indeed, there's a quite quite a number this week, actually. Oh, good. Oh, good. We like that. Go on. We like that very much. They're extremely welcome. Absolutely. And the first one of them is Alan Wallace. Oh, Alan. Alan Wallace. I know Alan Wallace. Very nice to have you aboard, Alan. Carry on. Kevin Caswell Jones. I don't know Kevin Caswell Jones, but I, I feel I'm going to. <laughs> Go on. The mysterious Andy. Oh, Andy. Just okay. Andy. Just Andy. You know Andy. Andy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then we have Peter Kirkham. Peter Kirkham. Excellent. Welcome, Peter. Bill Ambrose. Bill Ambrose. Also welcome. Come in and pull up a seat. Ian Lowe's. Ian Lowe's. Okay, splendid. Thomas Johnson. Hello, Thomas. Good Richard man. Ching. Who are? Richard Ching. Richard Ching, okay. Superb. Mark Hughes. Mark Hughes. The car's catchy, isn't it? Mark Hughes, yeah, carry on. Floating our boat. <laughs> floating Mr. and Mrs. Our Boat's son, floating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They used to do that thing, didn't they? On, uh, I'm sorry. Later arrivals at the so and so ball, wasn't it? Yeah, right, it yeah. was. Yeah, that used to be. A, yeah. That was a joy. That was. And can we remind people? Oh, before they, we do, we actually have some more patrons. I'm sorry. Oh, go on, go on, go on. Oh, go on. Patrons are annual patrons. So All right. Annually, which means they get 15% off their subscription which is a good thing obviously um gavin hogg gavin hogg oh, gavin welcome gavin uh Al pal alkins sorry i missed that colin alkins colin alkins Hello, welcome colin. colin splendid uh we also have joel diaz uh aka brighter day vinyl oh, oh yeah of course, well, joel yes great yes. admirers we did a yeah. big zoom about his record business yeah uh andrew rumsey Andrew also. Good. Welcome on board, Andrew. And last but certainly not least is Craig Mason. Thank you, Splendid. Craig. Very good to have you all on board. You're all and, extremely welcome. And so for the benefit of anybody who doesn't know, Alex, why don't you just reiterate the many benefits of being a Patreon supporter? Okay, so there are many tiers, and you can you can uh, look at them all with uh, many benefits at um, patreon.com forward slash word in your ear. Uh, but broadly speaking, you get access to our legendary weekly quiz where we all gather at 6 p.m. on a Friday night and uh, try to guess an album via 10 mysterious clues. Um, you get early and ad-free access to all of our content, so all of our podcasts, all of our video content, and... Um, Early bird access to our live events. Now we've started doing them again. Very uh, important. Indeed, absolutely. And also, if you subscribe to our Clubhouse tier, which is the top Patreon tier we offer at the moment, uh, you get uh, your very own birthday podcast. And also, um, you get an invite to our, our, our biannual socials. Absolutely. But uh, um, you should just stress once more, being a Patreon supporter means you get priority access to our word in your ear evenings and we had the first of uh, first one for a while earlier this week 
at 21 Soho with Rich Morton Jack uh, talking about Nick Drake and Kathy Unsworth talking about goth. I don't think it's fair to say it was a success. It was a it, great Jack? success. Yeah, and we're having, in fact, we've planned quite a few more. We're having another one on October the 30th. Ian Brody, the Lightning Seeds, talking about, you know, life in Liverpool in the late 70s when the whole city was in the charts. Funny Man and the Teardrops and Big in Japan and uh, the ascent of uh, the Lightning Seeds and co-writing the, the new national anthem, Three Lions. And we got John Higgs, haven't we, the KLF, who will be talking about, um, well, you know, Tammy Wynette and um, Punk and Rave and the Abba Court case, pelting crowds with cash, the... Uh, the famous uh, bonfire in the Jura Boathouse. It's going to be really good. They're both very good talkers. It'll be, it's going to be a fantastic evening. So that's October the 30th. Um, get your tickets now if you haven't done so already because they're going quickly. Uh, and we will. We hope to be announcing quite soon uh, a further um, show for November at the same place, 21 Soho, which is... Um, just around the corner from Tottenham Court Road Tube Station, so it's easily accessible, massively, massively easy to get to, and it might place. be might be something if you're coming from out of town that you want to combine maybe uh, with a day's Christmas shopping or something like that. I like the idea of people turning up at Twenty One Soho in the evening, wearing over weighed we're, we're down with parcels. That's right, weighing down with parcels with a light frosting of snow coming. <laughs> They think it'd be nice. A step they, down of a Dickensian card. That's yeah, right. No, I, I think, yeah. They, yeah, they should the mince be, pie. It should be like, one of them's Danny Kay and the other one's, you know, kind of Veronica Lake. <laughs> and they're shaking the snow off them. You know, it's... Fr- and then you hear, as the door as the door of 21 Soho opens, you hear the distant sound of a small child chirping carols. That's this, right. I'm a, sorry, I'm a chink of mulled wine glasses. Do you know, I wonder if we could actually organise a live fire. Can we have an open fire? Can we have crackling logs? Can we have a? Can we do the whole thing by a hearth? This podcast was brought to you by the Word. Hey.